I'll invite you to take your Bible if you have it with you this evening and turn to Jeremiah 13. Jeremiah 13, the only true source of change. We often speak at Legacy Baptist Church about the dramatic and important difference between a system of religion and a relationship with Creator God. We recognize the good and the necessary nature of religion. Religion indeed forms the framework within which we are encouraged and disciplined to worship God. Religion erects protections. It puts protections in place to help us counter the natural impulses of our sin nature. But for all the good things that religion can do for us, one thing it cannot do is change, truly change us. The focal point of religion is external. It is not internal. Religion is about controlling, modifying, encouraging action. It speaks not at all to intent, to reason, to motivation. It speaks to action. And to this end, religion is in itself entirely insufficient as a means of understanding God of earning favor with God, and more to the point this evening, religion is entirely insufficient as an agent of true change in the heart of a man. True change cannot happen from outside in. True change must happen from inside out. And God is going to speak to this reality in our text this evening. We were in Jeremiah 13 last week, of course. We walked through the second half of Jeremiah 11 and all of Jeremiah 12. We were in Jeremiah 13 this evening, beginning in verse 1. And I'm going to begin by reading to you verses 1 through 7. The Bible says this, Thus saith the Lord unto me, Go and get thee a linen girdle, this is the Lord speaking to Jeremiah, and put it upon thy loins, and put it not in water. So I got a girdle according to the word of the Lord and put it on my loins. And the word of the Lord came unto me the second time saying, Take the girdle that thou hast got, which is upon thy loins, and arise and go to Euphrates and hide it there in a hole of the rock. So I went and I hid it by Euphrates as the Lord commanded me. And it came to pass after many days that the Lord said unto me, Arise, go to Euphrates and take the girdle from thence, which I commanded thee to hide there. Then I went to Euphrates and digged and took the girdle from the place where I had hid it. And behold, the girdle was marred and it was profitable for nothing. Very interesting first seven verses. Is it not almost reminiscent of what we might see in Ezekiel, where Ezekiel was told to do all sorts of signs and wonders, physical signs with his body in order to make things evident. We have, in fact, here three individual commands which took place over an undisclosed amount of time. It may have been a significant amount of time. In fact, it probably was a significant amount of time between these three events. So the first event, God commands Jeremiah to go get a linen girdle and to put it on his loins. Uh, this would effectively be a linen apron of sorts. And he is specifically commanded not to put it in water. You know what that means? It means don't wash it. Right? So he says, put on this linen girdle and don't wash it. Now, we don't know how long Jeremiah was told to wear this linen girdle, but we know that as long as he had this linen girdle on, he was never to wash it, not to put it in water. And this is the idea. 
The idea is that Jeremiah is going to wear the linen girdle for an undisclosed amount of time, never wash it, and as he doesn't wash it, it's adding to itself filth and smells. Perhaps it stiffens from the dirt and the grind, right, to where, like, he puts it on the morning and clink, you know, and as he's tying it around himself, it is, it is going to get nasty, right? It's going to get smelly. It's going to get dirty. It's just not going to be pleasant, That's point number one. That's command number one. Wear this girdle for a long time and don't wash it. At some point later, we don't know how long, God commands Jeremiah to take his linen girdle and to go to the Euphrates, which is a river, and hide it there in the hole of a rock. The Euphrates River was a very important river as it relates to the empire of Babylon. Remember that at this time, Babylon is the empire. I give you a modern rendition there. We have Iraq, Iran, and Syria as it relates, but the rivers are still in the same places. And Babylon would be between the Tigris and the Euphrates River. Um, around this area would have been the heart of Babylon, Babylon City, what we now call Baghdad. And so God commands uh, him to take the, this linen girdle and to hide it in a rock alongside the river. Now, you notice that this river is actually nowhere near Israel. On this map, we don't even see Israel. Oops, here I am. We don't even see Israel. Israel would be mm, over here in the bush, right? So Israel is nowhere near where the Euphrates River is. A standard journey toward Babylon, as we've mentioned, would take a person north into Syria. They'd go from Israel due north until they hit the Euphrates River, and then they travel down the river, because if you're near a river, then you can get water, then you can bathe yourself, then you can have all of the protections that come with water and such. And um, so that's how you would get from Israel to Babylon. Jeremiah very likely did not travel all the way to Babylon, only to the north where the river Euphrates met with Syria would have been perhaps the closest point. Now, We say that the closest point, we are still talking some 350 miles from Jerusalem to this, where where would have been the nearest point to reach the Euphrates River. This would have been a several week journey, probably with a caravan, to get up to that river. Could you imagine being in a caravan with Jeremiah when he's got that linen girdle on? Not, not, not pleasant, right? Uh, he gets to stay in the back of that caravan. So he goes up to the Euphrates. Now, to, um, man, I'm not even going to go there. We're gonna, he goes up to the Euphrates and he buries this linen girdle. He buries this apron in a rock. And then he returns to Jerusalem. So several weeks up, several weeks back, perhaps even more than that, depending on the, the, the nature of travel, how many people in the caravan, how many miles did they travel a day. All of these things are question marks, right? Um, but, but perhaps better than a month there, better than a month back, maybe. And then at some point, the Lord speaks to Jeremiah again, and he says, go back up to the river, find the rock under which you buried the girdle, get the girdle, dig it back up again. And so he does so. And the Bible says that the girdle is now completely marred. Not only was it filthy before, but now it's torn. It's who knows, you know, animals biting holes in it. Who knows, right? Whether this girdle is now useless. It is marred beyond repair. It's good for nothing. Whereas before it was, you know, it started out clean, then it got gross, right? And dirty. 
Now it's completely unusable for its intended purpose, profitable for nothing. This is the three-part sign that Jeremiah was told to do. And this forms the basis of God's message to Israel, which begins in verse 8. The Bible says in verses 8 and 9, Then the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Thus saith the Lord, After this manner will I mar the pride of Judah and the great pride of Jerusalem. So here we find God directly connect the symbolism of the prophet's actions to his actions against Judah. And we find that the girdle is intended to represent, as it were, the pride of Judah, the great pride of Jerusalem. Now, as we'll see in a few verses, the girdle does seem to represent the nation as a whole, perhaps more than just its pride. It's more or less the nation as a whole, and as the girdle gets filthy and then eventually marred, there's nothing left for the people to be proud of, right? But that's the idea that we're seeing here. Even more specifically, as we continue through the text, God mentions here, we'll see it means that, they, that, that their pride has been marred because there's nothing left of value. Just as the girdle was greatly marred, just as the girdle was truly ruined, just as the girdle was profitable for nothing, so too God will mar this land and their pride will be abolished. Ruin any capacity of the people to exalt themselves, to be self-righteous, to say, wow, look at us, because there will be nothing in them of beauty. Continuing in verses 10 through 11. This evil people which refuse to hear my words, which walk in the imaginations of their heart and walk after other gods to serve them and to worship them shall even be as this girdle, which is good for nothing. For as the girdle cleaveth to the loins of a man, so have I caused to cleave unto me the whole house of Israel and the whole house of Judah, saith the Lord, that they might be unto me for a people and for, for a name and for a praise and for a glory, but they would not hear. So do you see how the picture is, is forming? God calls these people an evil people. The conditions upon, they, uh, upon which he calls them this is that they refuse to hear the words of God. They walk in the imaginations of their own heart. They do things their own way. They walk after other gods. They serve and worship other gods instead of the true and living God. And so God says, here's the thing. I have wrapped you around me like a girdle. You are close to me. You are, you, you are, 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 are as close as you can be to me. And I have been the one to bring you close. But as I've brought you close, you have refused to be washed. You have refused to be clean. You are filthy on me. And so I've taken you off and I'm going to bury you in the Euphrates. That would be captivity, right? He's going to send them to ba Babylon and bury them in the Euphrates at, at where, where they will become absolutely useless. They, 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 it, will, it will show just how beyond repair they have become to God. And that's that picture that we're seeing here. God will bury them in the Euphrates. He will finish the filthing that they began. They will become spiritually impotent, spiritually useless. And we continue then in verse 12. My apologies for not flipping that. The clicker's been a little bit uh, ornery today. Verse 12. Therefore thou shalt speak unto them this word. Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, Every bottle shall be filled with wine, and they shall say unto thee, Do we not certainly know that every bottle shall be filled with wine? Beginning here in verse 12, God is telling Jeremiah what 
he should say unto the people. So to this point, Jeremiah has done this sign and then he, you can perhaps see him by the temple holding up this girdle that's filthy and marred and saying, this is what God is going to do to your pride. This is what God, this is what the nation is going to look like by the time God is finished with you. And now God says, speak something else to the nation of Israel. Speak to them this word. And God says to tell the nation, every bottle shall be filled with wine. The word bottle here is actually referring to what we would generically call a wine skin or an oil skin, an animal hide within which people would hold any number of liquids. And here God says that every one of these wine skins, every one of these oil skins would be filled with wine. And the people respond here. They shall say unto thee, God's saying, you're going to tell the people every bottle shall be filled with wine and the people are going to say back to you, Jeremiah, that's right, every bottle will be filled with wine. Now, the, they hear the, the words that Jeremiah said, but they interpret them far differently than Jeremiah is delivering them. When the people hear Jeremiah say, all the bottles shall be filled with wine, what they're thinking of is, yeah, we're going to have plenty. There's going to be wine presses and we're going to have plenty and we're going to be able to revel and we're going to be able to have our parties and our luxuries because it's all there. The future is full of celebration, right? That's what they think when they hear Jeremiah say that. But this is not what God means when he tells them that all their bottles shall be filled with wine. To this end, God clarifies the meaning God says, Jeremiah, tell them this. And when you tell them this, they're going to say back, yeah, of course, every bottle will be filled with wine. It's celebration time. Life is good. God says, continue, verses 13 and 14. Then shalt thou say to them, thus saith the Lord, behold, I will fill all the inhabitants of this land, even the kings that sit upon David's throne and the priests and the prophets and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem with drunkenness. And I will dash them one against another, even the fathers and the sons together, saith the Lord. I will not pity, nor spare, nor have mercy, but destroy them. So the wine, God says, will be used to make you drunken, to make you incapable, to put you into a vulnerable place where you will be destroyed. Your own revelings, your own celebrations, your own incapacity to appreciate the, the situation as it stands will be your undoing. And then you will not be spared. There will be no pity. There will be no sparing. There will be no mercy. But there will be destruction. God then makes another direct appeal in verse 15. Hear ye and give ear. Be not proud, for the Lord has spoken. I love this. Don't you love it? Every time this comes up, you're reading and, and God is de de doom and destruction and, and, and you're evil and you're sin. And then God says, would you turn? Would you just stop with the pride thing and, and, and humble yourself? Would you just listen to me? Can you see how God is still there saying, I've got... I'm ready to bless. I want to bless. I want, to, I want you to repent so I can bless you. I don't want to do this to you. You're on this path and I'm telling you you're on this path. And if you go down this path, I have to destroy you, but I don't want to destroy you. So get off the path. The mercy of God is still there. Stop your pride, the Lord says. You think that these bottles are filled with your merriment, but they're actually filled with the very thing that is going to destroy you. 
He continues his exhortation unto hearing in verses 16 and 17. Give glory to the Lord your God before he causes darkness and before your feet stumble upon the dark mountains. And while you look for light, he turned it into the shadow of death and make it gross darkness, great darkness. But if you will not hear it, my soul shall weep in secret places for your pride. And mine eye shall weep sore and run down with tears because the Lord's flock is carried away captive. The call here is that they would quit with their pride. They would turn. They would repent before it is too late. Before they are brought so deeply into the darkness of their rejection of God's light that the truths uh, are, are so far from them that there's simply no way to find themselves back. Find their way back. Have you ever seen someone heading down that path? They've rejected the light of life. Believer or unbeliever, that's not what I'm talking about. But they've rejected the light that is God's word. And you see them walking down the path and it's like the farther they walk down the path, the less they can see the light. And the fear and, and the prayer and the weeping is that they would not hit that point where it's so dark that they simply have no, nothing left by which to orient themselves to the truths of God's word any longer. God says, you're coming perilously close, Jerusalem. You're coming perilously close. If you don't turn away now, you might hit the point of no return where there's no light left, where there's, you, th 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 there's nothing left that you can see, where you're, you're, you're too deep into the pit of your own pride. We've spoken any number of times about the judgment of darkness upon those that reject the word of God. God's word is truth. Those that reject it are judged with darkness, a lack of wisdom, a lack of discernment, a lack of capacity to find the way that they ought to go. And they are on the edge of this. In other words, we might say it this way. God says, I have been calling and crying out for your repentance, but there is a limit to this. It's a limited time offer. And there comes a point where that offer is taken away. And the only thing left is judgment. So God says he'll weep for them. God says, if you will not hear, if you persist in your pride against which the soul of the Lord weeps and mourns, then you will be destroyed and I will weep for you, God says, because my flock is carried away captive. This is not a pleasant thing to the Lord. The message continues in verse 18. Say unto the king and to the queen, humble yourselves, sit down, for your principalities shall come down, even the crown of your glory. God funnels the message now directly into the ears of the leaders of the land. What the Bible says uh, in, in our King James translation are the king and the queen. It's an interesting word queen here. It's more generally a word which not, would not be used for the queen proper, but for the mother of a king um, rather than the wife of a king. It's actually more, most literally translated mistress, which would have been a title given to the queen mother quite often. So it's not necessarily speaking perhaps of the king and his wife, but rather of the king and his mother. And if this is the case, this might actually give us a little bit of a hint into when Jeremiah is talking here. We don't have the blessing of Ezekiel here or, or, or some of those other books where we get regular time 
intervals that are announced, right? On, the, on this day of this month, this happened. On this day of this month, the word of the Lord came unto me. Jeremiah tells us that is generally happening within this scope of time with uh, Josiah and then with uh, the Coniahs and the, uh, the Ayahs and the Kayas and such that come after him, right? All of the different kings' names. Uh, and so he's within these final years uh, of the Lord. And, and yet there is one particular king who had a very active mother, and that would be King Jehoiachin. Jehoiachin and his mother, Nehushta, who is actually mentioned in the Bible, which is very rare, but she's mentioned, which means she probably was quite influential in the kingdom. That's why she would, she would be mentioned. Um, might have been the king and queen mother who are being spoken of here. And that is perhaps indicative of the fact that this word mistress is used instead of wife to speak of the queen. If this is the case, during the three months and ten days that Jehoiachin reigned, um, we're talking about a, a period of time just before the very final king, several of the, two of the three deportations have already taken place. Uh, no, one of the three, I'm sorry, of the deportations has already taken place. So this is a time where judgment is already happening. People are already seeing it happen. This is the latter end of Jeremiah's ministry already, if that is the timetable we're dealing with. Again, this is all kind of inference. We don't know. This is, this is the best timetable clue that we have, though. So wanted to give that to you. So the message is, is in this time, and the message is that they would humble themselves, lest they be brought to naught, and their power be stripped from them. Verse 19. The cities of the south shall be shut up, and none shall open them. Judah shall be carried away captive, all of it. It shall be wholly carried away captive. Now, if this message is to Jehoiachin, it gives some pretty important perspective. The warnings of Jeremiah in this respect would not be years off. Jehoiachin only reigned for three months and ten days before he was taken to Babylon. We're talking about a very limited scope of time here. And he warns that the cities of the south... This is where the kings would regularly flee when they were in trouble. They would go down to those fortresses that David would talk about, the rock fortresses, the rocks that are higher than they, uh, the, the area of Masada and such. They would go down to those rock fortresses to try to wait out the enemy. He warns that those places would be shut to them, that they would not be able to flee to the south, that they would have no means by which to seek refuge within their own land. He warns that the people would be carried away captive and not just carried away, but wholly carried away. Verses 20 and 21, God says, Lift up your eyes and behold them that come from the north. Where is the flock that was given thee, thy beautiful flock? What wilt thou say when he shall punish thee? For thou hast taught them to be captains and as chief over thee. Shall not sorrows take thee as a woman in travail? God tells the king and queen that they need to wake up, that they need to humble themselves, that they need to see what's going on here. He appeals to any vestige of actual care that they might have for their people. He asks, where is the flock that I have put in your care, king and queen? What, what has happened to that flock, thy beautiful flock? And then he asks, what wilt thou say when he shall punish thee, king? Speaking specifically to the king here. What will you say to the flock when you're punished? And the idea is, what will you say when your enemies are above you, when they rule over you? What, what are you going to say then? He says, will not sorrow come upon you then? Why not humble yourself now rather than deal with the sorrow? 
rather than deal with the punishment, rather than deal with the consequences. So God's pleading with the king that he would cease his pride because if he doesn't, it's not going to go well for him and it's not going to go well for his people. Don't you care, God says, about your flock, about these people that you've been put in charge of? Verses 22 and 23. And if thou say in thine heart, notice the thou, right? That's a singular pronoun. We're still speaking to him, one person. If thou say, if thou say in thine heart, wherefore come these things upon me? For the greatness of thine iniquity are thy skirts discovered and thy heels made bare. Can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? Then may ye also do good that are accustomed to do evil. So God continues with his message to the king and he cuts off all the king's excuses. When the afflictions come upon the king and the sorrow comes upon him, God says, if in that day you're wondering in your heart, why me, God? Why are these terrible things coming upon me? God says, I can answer that one for you. It's because of your sin. You'll have no excuse. Just a few months earlier, Jeremiah was looking you in the eye and saying, repent, this is about to come upon you. No excuse for you, king. You are in this spot. You are in this sorrow. You are in this captivity and your people with you because of your sin. So God asks, can an Ethiopian change his skin? Can a leopard change his spots? An Ethiopian would have very dark skin. And the idea behind this is that the Ethiopian skin is dark and will always be dark. Unlike a lighter tone, where my skin might start a certain color and then through time and through uh, sun and whatnot, uh, through aging, it, it might darken over time. I might tan. I might get sunspots. I might uh, get any number of, of, of things. The darkness of the Ethiopian skin remains dark. And likewise, God speaks of the spots of a leopard. Can a, can a leopard change his spots? You don't see a leopard jump into water and then he comes out without spots on anymore. The spots are kind of built into him, right? It's kind of a feature set of the leopard. He's got spots. The Ethiopians have the dark skin. The leopards have the spots. They can't change those things. They are what they are. The obvious answer to both of these then is no. An Ethiopian can't change his skin. A leopard can't change his spots. These things are what they are. And you cannot change these unchangeables. And God says to the nation, you know what? It seems like you're about there. You are unmovable in your evil. You are evil people and you will not change. It is just who you are. You are so set on evil. It seems no amount of prophetic utterance, divine pleading can change your mind. Verses 24 and 25. God says, therefore will I scatter them as the stubble that passeth away by the wind of the wilderness. This is thy lot. The portion of thy measures from me, saith the Lord, because thou hast forgotten me and trusted in falsehood. God says you'll be, you'll be scattered like the stubble in the wind. You, I'm, I'm, I'm in the process of trying to keep my lawn generally leaf free. Uh, it's it's a, a difficult battle at this time of year. If I don't do so, then all of the grass in my yard dies because the leaves pile on thick with all the oaks trees and we have and the maple tree and whatnot. We got a lot of leaves. So at this point in the season, I'm blowing and I'm raking and the leaves are coming together. And then at some point, I'll mulch a bunch of them up. And as I mulch them up, my hope is that I can get them small enough that I don't have to bag them as much and the wind will just kind of carry them and blow them away, right? They'll just scatter them in, in the wind. And, and the individual leaves, they get caught up and stuff. But the small little, you know, you, you, you mulch it up enough and it just goes into the grass or blows away. 
He says, that's what's going to happen to you. You're going to be like the stubble in the wind. It's just nothing left. You're just going to blow away. This is your lot, God says, because you've earned it. Your actions have earned it because you forgot the Lord, because you trusted in lies. And the chapter finishes in verses 26 and 27. Therefore will I discover thy skirts upon thy face, that thy shame may appear. I have seen thine adulteries and thy neighings, the lewdness of thy whoredom and thy abominations on the hills and the fields. Woe unto thee, O Jerusalem! Wilt thou not be made clean? When shall it once be? The conclusion is predictable. God will bring them to ruin. The idea of discovering thy skirts upon thy face is bringing them to shame. Um, To have one's nakedness uncovered in any way, shape, or form um, in, in, in any reasonable culture is a shame. Right? In our culture, it's not a shame anymore, which tells you a lot about our culture. But the idea is that they would have their nakedness discovered. They would become ashamed. That's that picture there. And yet he pleads with them one last time. I love it. Every time I see it. Will thou not be made clean? Don't you want to be cleansed? Before I take this linen girdle and I bury it in Ethiopia, wouldn't you rather that I just wash the linen girdle and then put it back on? Right? That's kind of the idea here. We start where we left, we, we leave where, 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 we, where we began. We began with this picture of the linen girdle that's being washed. No, that's not being washed, excuse me. And it's, it becomes so filthy that Jeremiah goes and he buries it in, in, in the Euphrates. And now God is talking to this linen girdle that is filthy but has not yet been buried, right? It is not yet buried in the Euphrates. It is not yet in Babylon. And he says, wouldn't it be better if I could just wash the girdle clean and it could be clean? Won't you be made clean? It is here, of course, where we stop. We'll stop at the end of the chapter. And I want to get into three points of application this evening. A few different points as we consider together. And point number one of our application together, a leopard can't change his spots and a man can't change his heart. One of the things that we see here is God tell the nation, you're you're unchangeable. You're not changing yourself. Notice when he appeals to them, he says, wilt thou not be made clean? He didn't say, will you not wash yourself, did he? He said, will you not be made clean? God is speaking to a people who have no capacity to clean themselves. None of us do. And he's telling them, you are, a leopard can't change his spots, an Ethiopian can't change his skin, and you are set on evil. But the amazing thing about this contrast, this statement, is that while he's saying you can't change your spots, you can't change your skin, you are set on evil, you are what you are, he's still appealing to them to be changed. How is that possible? What does that mean? What does it mean that he's calling for them to be changed, but then simultaneously saying they can't change themselves? Well, that's right. He's calling for them to submit themselves to him so that he may cleanse them so that he may wash them. You can't change yourself. You you can discipline yourself. 
You can alter your actions. You can alter your motivations. You can garner new perspectives, but you have no capacity to change your own heart. We talk about these ideas of you can have a change of heart, and that idea is that you are, you are repenting, you are turning to something, from something. But the, what, what, what I'm saying is the cleansing power of God, the capacity to overcome sin, the ability to be made a new man, to be made something different than what you once were, this is a power that is reserved for the Spirit of God. This is God's work in the heart of man. This is, in fact, the entire point of the discussion within which we find what we might consider to be the most popular verse in our entire Bible, John 3.16. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life, right? John 3.16 is spoken as a part of a discussion between Jesus and a Pharisee named Nicodemus, a man who was very, very moral, but did not understand a lick of what Jesus was saying. And so he comes to Jesus by night and he's asking Jesus questions. And it is within this chapter that we derive the concept of being born again, right? A concept that speaks toward the necessity of change, the necessity of something new, of newness of life. Ye must be born again. There must be something that takes place within you that changes you from what you are to something different. You need to be given a new life. Jesus does not speak in this chapter of an external reform that will work its way inward. Jesus does not speak of some external act that is going to somehow leak into your heart. He's speaking of an internal reform, being born again, that then becomes, works its way outward. You can't will your way to heaven. You can't work your way to heaven. You can't moralize your way to heaven. You must be born again. Born first in the flesh. That's the first birth. Born second in the spirit. That's the second birth. So as Jesus is speaking to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, verse 3, the Bible says, Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now most of us in here this evening understand the gospel of Jesus Christ. You understand your own incapacity to get yourself to heaven, right? I hope you know that you can't get yourself to heaven. You can't work. You can't will it. You can't earn it. You can't moralize your way there. You must be born again. You understand that you cannot earn your eternal salvation. The kingdom of heaven is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast, right? That's Ephesians 2, 8, 9. But what we so often fail to do as Christians is translate this same understanding into the manner in which we live our Christian lives. We begin by grace, through faith, in the Spirit of God. I can't get myself to heaven. I can't earn the favor with God that will admit me on the day of salvation. And then we spend the rest of our lives struggling against ourselves to do right. Seeking to discipline our flesh and control our flesh in the same manner as the world does. The world around us seeks function in a moral or or a positive fashion. They desire to have some sort of moral or positive manner of living by manipulating their flesh, deceiving their flesh into any number of actions and inactions. People discipline their flesh 
in order to please others. The impulses of their heart they don't pursue because they have parents that might be upset. Uh, They might be ashamed before their friends or their family or their wife or their children. People discipline their flesh to keep them out of jail. The impulses of their heart that might compel them to do certain things they don't do because they fear the law, because they know the consequences, and it keeps them away from doing the things that otherwise in their heart they might legitimately want to do. People discipline their flesh because it will help them make money. Because uh, by being disciplined, they found that, that, that uh, this manner of disciplined living is actually a very positive thing. That they're not one of those people that ends up um, uh, stuck in some rut or, or some, uh, some addiction. They discipline themselves and so they are able to achieve more in their lives. People are driven to discipline their, their flesh through pride, through selfishness, through fear, uh, through distrust. For any number of reasons, even unbelievers are more than capable of religiously disciplining your flesh. Right? We see that some of the most moral people in our country are people who do not claim the name of Christ. Whether we want to talk about the Latter-day Saints or whether we want to talk about the Orthodox Jews, or, or whatever other sects we want to pursue, the, many of the most moral people in our country are people who we recognize have not been born again, as the scriptures teach it. So what's the difference then? What's the difference between disciplining your flesh, between just funneling your flesh into these rails of discipline that keep you doing certain things and not doing other things. What's the difference between that and a Christian life? Because they're not the same. See, that is not how a Christian life is designed to function. The Christian life is not intended to simply be the rails that are keeping you from flying off toward the true desires of your heart. The Christian life is intended to be a fundamental transformation of the desires of your heart. A fundamental transformation, not just of your actions, but of your intents and of your motives. The Christian life is intended to be the positive outflow of the power of the Spirit of God in the lives of His people. We're supposed to walk by faith. We're supposed to walk in the Spirit and so not fulfill the lust of the flesh, right? It doesn't say... Uh, uh, discipline your flesh, it says walk in the spirit and ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. The Christian life calls us not to moral actions explicitly, but to draw nigh to God that he may draw nigh to us and produce in us himself. I'm going to prove this point by reading a good chunk of Romans 8 this evening which will tell us that God has not called us unto morality through personal discipline, but rather unto morality through personal submission. May I say that again? We, don't, we are not called unto morality through personal discipline. We are called unto morality through personal submission from an inside-out change, submitting ourselves to the will of God who then changes our heart from the inside out and gives us the desire and the capacity to do His will, not us changing ourselves from the outside in. A leopard cannot change his spots. An Ethiopian cannot change his skin. We cannot make ourselves pleasing to God, not just as unbelievers, but as believers. It is God that works in us both to will and to do of his good pleasure. 
So notice what the Bible says in Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin condemned sin in the flesh, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. For they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh, but they that are after the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying that those who walk in the Spirit love the things of the Spirit, desire the things of the Spirit, mind the things of the Spirit, and yet through the Spirit, we are able to fulfill the law that in our flesh we are incapable of fulfilling. We don't try to fulfill the law of God by disciplining ourselves. We walk in the Spirit. And the Spirit causes us to mind the things of the Spirit. Verse 6, For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace because the carnal mind is enmity against God for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can it be. The flesh is opposed to God. We are opposed to God naturally. A leopard cannot change his spots. So then they that are in the flesh cannot please God. This is not speaking only of unbelievers. This is speaking of they that are in the flesh. They that are in the flesh. Paul spoke of unbelievers, Romans 1, 2, 3, into salvation, 3, 4, 5. Romans 6, what should we say then? Should we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. 7, 8. He's speaking to believers in this passage. To be carnally minded is death. They that are in the flesh cannot please God. But ye are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, Right? If so, be that the Spirit of God dwell in you. So you're in the Spirit. You're a believer. Now, if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he's none of his. Then you're, you're, out, you're outside of this conversation altogether. And if Christ be in you, the body is dead because of sin. You still have this sin nature that you struggle against and you still desire within your sin nature to do the, the things that the sin nature loves to do, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life. But if the Spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, he that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by his spirit that dwelleth in you. Then the God who raised Jesus from the dead can take the dead body that you're in that is dead in its trespasses and sins and even make it capable of righteousness. This is a miracle that not only has he enlivened us from the inside out, but then the very spirit of God that raised up Jesus from the dead can take the spirit which is alive in you and can cause it to bubble out of you so that you Live in the Spirit so that you do the righteousness of God in, the, in, in your flesh. Not the flesh, but your flesh, in the body. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live after the flesh. Notice here the warning. You are not in the flesh, so don't live after the flesh. You're not a debtor to live. You're not a debtor to that anymore. You're not a debtor to the power of the flesh. You're not a debtor to the desires of the flesh. You're not a debtor to this because God is able to change you from the inside out. He's able to actually transform you. For if you live in the flesh, 
ye shall die. But if ye through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, it doesn't say if ye through discipline mortify the deeds of the body. It doesn't say ye through rules mortify the deeds of the body. It doesn't say ye through religious devotion mortify the deeds of the body. If ye through the Spirit. You want to mortify the deeds of the body? Are you struggling with the deeds of the body? The Spirit is your answer. If ye through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, ye shall live. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. For ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but ye have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. It is an extremely, extremely unfortunate, a deeply sorrowful reality that a very large portion of Christians uh, in this world, the, the, the lives of many Christians that are around us are dominated by their sin nature and they're frustrated in their attempts to curb it. Because though they desire to do right and they even have the capacity to do it, they never tap into the power through which it can actually successfully be done. They pursue every and any means by which to conquer their sin nature. They change everything externally as they possibly can, but a leopard cannot change his spots. They don't ever actually draw nigh unto God. Submit to the Spirit. Walk in the Spirit and ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Ye, through the Spirit, mortify the deeds of the, of the body. They never take Yield the battle to the Lord in prayer. Submit it to the Lord. Walk in the Spirit and through the sanctifying power of the Word of God and the Spirit of God, through humble submission, find victory. So then the Christian perceives that something isn't working, right? They're trying this moral thing. They're trying this religious thing and it's not working. And so they turn to other solutions and they turn to secular solutions, which directs the Christian mind into any number of flesh manipulating theories and exercises, sometimes medications to deal with the manifestations of their sin nature. When all along the very spirit of God that raised Jesus up from the dead is sitting idle in them, waiting to be tapped into. Now, don't get me wrong. Discipline is not a bad thing. I'm not saying discipline is a bad thing. Okay. I'm not saying religion is a bad thing. Religion is not a bad thing. Religion is a very good and valuable thing. Measures of protections are important. I preached a message not long ago on making sure that your internet is, is, is filtered. Uh, dress standards are important. Internet filters are important. These things are important. But the danger is when these safeguards and disciplines become an end in and of themselves rather than the means of achieving an end. In other words, righteous and moral actions are designed by God to become the natural outworking of those who are empowered by God. I become kind. I become honest. I become modest. I become temperate because I'm submitted to the Spirit of God and the Spirit of God is changing me, is making me what I ought to be. But what most people, even many Christians do, instead is that they erect in their lives standards unto which they desire to attain, and instead of drawing nigh to God in order to attain unto those standards by the power of the Spirit, walking in the Spirit, and so having God change the person from the inside out, we take the shortcut, which is simply to assume the standard, discipline our flesh, 
And life then becomes a constant and a continual struggle between what I want to do and what I can't do and what I truly think I should do, but I'm not really wanting to do. It's a struggle against yourself, your will, your desires. And, and, and this is the product of those who put religion as the end rather than the means. A system put in place to control my actions, but not the power of God. Not the power of the gospel. Not the spirit that gives life. This is exactly what Paul warned about in Galatians. The threat of those that having been gone in the spirit are now made perfect by the flesh. Are you struggling with a sin? Maybe it's strong. Maybe it's dominant. Of course, we need to put protections in place. That's wisdom. But the battle that you're actually facing is not a battle over how much can you discipline yourself? How many physical protections can you put in place? How many standards can you erect in your life to guide your actions? How well can you manipulate yourself into thinking you don't want what your flesh has wanted? How well can you um, cause yourself to be, to manipulate yourself in fear or to manipulate yourself because you think you might get caught, whatever it might be? How well can I put these protections in place? But that's not really where the battle is. The battle is a spiritual battle and it is one when God has changed you from the inside out where you, your, your spirit is commending with the spirit of God and the power of the spirit of God is changing your desires so that it's not difficult. It may not always be pleasant. Sometimes there's something that we've clung on to and it's not necessarily something, I'm not talking about egregious moral sins here, but maybe it's something that you've, you've, you've clung on to for a while. It's a habit, it's a routine, it's whatever it is. And you know it's time to give it up. And there, there can be a little bit of a, a sadness because maybe it defined a part of your childhood. You know, if you watched certain things and now it's time not to watch those things anymore or if you did certain things and now it's time not to do those things anymore because you've just been led by the Spirit to not do those things anymore. And there can be this kind of nostalgic sadness that you're, 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 you know, it's like you're having little portions of you cut out. But the fact is, is that when you get to that point, you, you want it gone because the Spirit of God has said it's time for it to go. This is an inside out thing. This is not somebody looking at you and saying, get rid of that, get rid of that, get rid of that, get rid of that. This is you, this is the Spirit of God saying, you're drawing nigh to me. And these things are incompatible with me. And so it's time for them to go. And you say, yeah, it is. Because your heart has changed toward those things. Your heart has changed towards those things. This is the working of the power of the Spirit of God in you. This is the victory in the Spirit. Big sin, little sin. Big thing, little thing. I'm not talking about that. It could be little, it could be big. It could be big to you, it could be little to someone else. What we're talking about is the inside out working of the Spirit as you dry not, not draw nigh to God and God says, okay, now this, this thing, it's, it's kind of a wedge between you and me. Let's, let's let that one go. And the Spirit of God within you makes it happen. The power of God to change our heart. This is something we cannot do on our own. 
Religion can't do it. Discipline can't do it. Standards can't do it. We aren't here. We aren't sitting in these seats to become moral people. We aren't sitting here to become good Christians in an external sense. We are here to become like Christ. And only the Spirit of God can do that for us. Only as you submit to God, draw near to God, learn of God, seek God with all your heart. Pastor, you don't understand what I'm struggling with. You don't understand. You don't understand what, what, the, what, what, what the Word of God, what the Bible of God would ask me to do if I would submit. Maybe I don't. Maybe I do. But here's what I know. Draw nigh to God. Let God change you. And then see how you feel. Keep drawing nigh. Keep getting closer. Only the Spirit of God can change us as we need to be changed. Only submission to God. There are no shortcuts to this. There are shortcuts to moral living. Plenty of them. There are shortcuts to impressing your pastor. There's plenty of shortcuts if you want to impress your pastor. But there's no shortcut to true change, heart change, inside out change. Because a leopard can't change his spots. You can't change yourself. You cannot change yourself. You can change your actions. But if it was not precipitated by a heart change, the Spirit of God commending with your spirit, changing your wants and your actions and your desires, then you've put the cart before the horse. And sometimes it works. Sometimes you just kind of brute force a change and then your heart catches up. If you've ever done that, I've done that. But that's not the natural way that God has designed it to be. Draw nigh to God and watch what the Spirit of God, the Spirit that raised Jesus Christ from the dead can do for you. Point number two. Point number one, a leopard can't change his spots and a man can't change his heart. Point number two, as believers, if we aren't walking in the Spirit, what good are we? This sounds a little harsh, and I apologize if it sounds a little harsh, but here, let's just say it. Jeremiah took a living girl. He wore it. It became soiled. It became smelly. It became dirty. He wore it still. It got smellier. It got dirtier. And then he went and he buried it in a rock. And when he pulled it out, it was good for nothing. Why is it so important that we understand that we cannot change ourselves? Why is it so important that we be submitted to God so that he can change us from the inside out? Because if we're talking about spiritual impact, if we're talking about the capacity of the Spirit of God to use us, what good are we if we're not empowered by the Spirit of God? If we aren't walking in obedience, if we aren't cleansed by the Spirit, if we aren't walking in the Spirit of God, then realistically we're kind of like that linen girdle. Jerusalem had any number of externalities that, were, that would commend it. They, the temple was still functioning. They were, there were still burnt offerings. How many, I mean, we, we've already read God reject those burnt offerings, right, in Jeremiah. And we went to Isaiah and we went to Hosea and we went to Micah and, and we went to all of the other chapters that say, I reject your burnt offerings. Why did God reject their burnt offerings? It wasn't enough. See, if we fail to walk in the Spirit, if we fail to be distinct, if we fail to be what God has created us to be, then as Jesus would say on the Sermon on the Mount, we are thenceforth good for nothing to be cast down and be trodden underfoot of men. And I'm not trying to be nihilistic here. I'm not trying to tell you that you are forever useless. That's not, that's not what I'm trying to say here. But you might at this time be useless or certainly not nearly as useful to God as you could be. And if you are in this state, there's a solution, which James gives us in James chapter 4. It's the same solution that God called the king to, and the queen to, and the nation to in Jeremiah. Je James chapter 4, verse 7 through 10. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. 
Resist the devil. He will flee from you. Draw nigh to God. He will draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands, ye sinners. Purify your hearts, ye double-minded. Be afflicted and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to heaviness. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he shall lift you up. This is what God's telling them in Jeremiah 13, is it not? Stop being so proud. I will mar your pride. But if you humble yourself, then I will wash you and then you'll be useful. Humility. Humility. Stop your pride, God says to the nation. Humble yourself before the Lord and watch what he can do for you. And what a blessing this is. Isn't it a blessing that spirituality, that spiritual effectiveness does not depend upon me? Isn't it great that God doesn't say, make yourself a spiritual person? Isn't it great that God doesn't say, make yourself spiritually effective? Isn't it great that God says, humble yourself before me and I will work in you spirituality and spiritual effectiveness through the spirit that raised Jesus from the dead? Isn't it great that our job is to obey, to trust and obey, to humble ourselves, to submit, and then God will promise to do the work in us. And the best thing about it is he promises to do the work in us. And then as we yield to the power of the spirit of God in our lives, he blesses us for it. Like he does the work and then he rewards us. It would be like me going out and raking the leaves and then coming in and saying, good job, girls, and giving them a dollar. Not quite, but sort of. God blesses us for humbling ourselves. And then when we humble ourselves, the Spirit of God empowers us to do the work that He's called us to do. And then we get everlasting rewards in heaven. That sounds like a good deal to me. One final point. How long does any man have to repent? As God, through Jeremiah, delivers this message and particularly As he turned his focus toward the king of Judah, he warned that time was short. Let us never forget that time is short. As a father, I marvel at how quickly time has gone. My daughter, Irene's second birthday is this Tuesday. She's two years old. My eldest girls will be seven years old in November. Time just flies. Should the Lord bless my wife and I with 60 years, 70 years, 80 years, it goes by so quickly. How long are we going to keep trying our own way? How long are we going to wrestle against that sin? How long, perhaps, are you going to wait before you accept Jesus Christ as your Savior? How long? How much time? You know, there are certain things that really make make cost evident. They say that if you want to know how much you spend, don't use credit cards and actually bring cash around. So as you're plunking down the cash, you see just how much money is leaving you, right? They say that that's a good way to do it. One of the things that really uh, makes uh, certain things evident to me, I tell people that when I go out to shoot my gun, I've got a, a 40 caliber handgun. One of the things is, is every time I pull that trigger and I see that round go, I see two quarters go, ding because it's about 50 cents a round, right? And it's just like, ow, ow. And it's not because the gun is recoiling that it hurts. It's because those two quarters are flying out every time I pull the trigger and it hurts, right? That's money. That's money that leaves every time I pull the trigger, right? That's money that goes into a piece of paper, through a piece of paper, hopefully, and and then into something in the back. How fast does time go? 
How fleeting are our days? How long is it going to take before we wisen up and say, you know what, let's just let God be in charge of this? How many hours? How much time? Just gets wasted while we say, maybe tomorrow I'll submit to the Spirit of God. Maybe tomorrow. I'll get victory. Maybe tomorrow I'll become spiritually useful. I don't want this to be a really downer message, but time is short. We often talk about that as it relates to salvation. We talk about that as it relates to evangelism. What about blessing? What about the power of God to work in you, to touch lives, to minister, to affect this world. Time is short. Limited time offers, right? Just as there's a limited time offer on salvation, there's a limited time offer on eternal treasure. We only have as long as we have. And then we live with it eternally, should you be a believer. Let's make sure that we are living in a manner that is submitted to the Spirit of God so that He might work in us. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.